Well, good morning. If you will, open in your Bible all the way to Genesis chapter 2. At some point, that dad jokes, we'll get old, but I'm still going still gonna to be pressing in on it. So I just want y'all to know how proud I am. I didn't trip coming up the stage. So I've um, got me a new pair of glasses, and I'm now to the age of needing magnifiers on the bottom. And I've not yet learned to walk with them. <laughs> So the transitions coming up the uh, stairs were dangerous. <laughs> but I can handle getting laughed at if I do fall. That's fine. But so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue our series in um, Genesis. And we're going to be looking at the, the God, the good gift giver. This, this study that we're in right now, we've entitled it the gospel of Genesis, following the, the story of the snake crusher. I want you to, to see as we peel back the different layers in Genesis that Genesis is nothing less than a gospel message. It's the story of the fall, sin entering into the world, and God making a promise in, in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send a promised child into the world, the seed of the woman, who he will be struck on his heel by the servant, but he will once and for all crush its head. And as we see this book, as the book unfolds, and as the, the narrative of the whole Bible unfolds, it, it narrows in and in and in and in on this person being the, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning is going to move from last week we looked at the formation of the world in Genesis 1 and now in Genesis 2 we're going to see the gifts that God made for man and, and how he formed man. So here's, here's uh, our what is true. Why I do this is every preacher writes a thesis to a sermon like what it's about, and normally they just subtly put it in there. So I'm just trying to plainly say what we're talking about and what the application is. So if you're like, why do we do this every week? That's, that's the why. <laughs> so what is true? God created a people, God created a place for these people, and God created a purpose for these people. So what do we do? We are to live out our God-given purpose to work and to worship Him. And we're going to take this in a couple of bites this morning. So the first chunk we're going to look at is Genesis 4.14. And we're going to see the God-given gift of life and the place. So starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and, and the earth when, we were created, when they were created in the days that the Lord God made the, heaven, <coughs> made, made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field was yet had yet sprung up, for the Lord God, that's different. When you find something different, just underline it. Well, how for chapter one's all God. Now we have a different title, the Lord God. He made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in it, oh, I, I got on the wrong spot. We're going to pick up at the dash. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6, and a mist was going 
up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, there it is again, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And then he put the man whom he had, uh, there he had put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree, it was the tree of the knowledge, uh, or and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, and the river flowed out of Eden to the water, the garden, and there it was divided, and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishnon, and it is the one that flowed out of the whole land of Havila. If you know how to say that, tell me afterwards. <laughs> Where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good, and the bedlam and the onyx stones are there. The name of the, se- uh, the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth is uh, the fourth river is the Euphrates. So let's look back at verse 4. In the book of Genesis, a big blinking light to let you know you're coming into a new section is when you see this word, uh, generations. The Hebrew word is a fun one. It's called, it, it's the toledot. It's the generations. We just saw the generations of the earth and sky, and now we're fixing our attention for the rest of the book to the generations of Adam. Now, the, the, the book of Genesis does not follow all the lineage of Adam, right? We don't follow every line of all people in human history. Instead, we're going to follow the lineage of the snake crusher, Jesus Christ, following Adam's son, Seth, to, to, from Seth to Noah and the children of Noah, from Noah to Abraham, and from Abraham to Jacob, and finally with Jacob's children, which we call the nation of Israel. And the book ends with them in Egypt for four, preparing for this 430 years of slavery where God is going to show up, deliver them, and display His glory. That sounds a lot like the beginning of Matthew and Luke, right? There's a reason those are there. It's showing us the lineage of the snake crusher. It's showing us the lineage of Jesus going all the way back to Adam, pointing our minds to this first promise. So if you're making a cheat sheet for reading the book of Genesis, just know the word generations is one of those words that should always draw your attention. And when you see generations, generations is either... Uh, a transition in the story leading someone out. For instance, it's leading out, uh, the first place we'll see it is with Cain, and then later with um, like Esau or Lot. It's transitioning important characters out of the story and then honing in on specifically the lineage of, of the seed of the woman, the snake crusher. So let's look back at verse 4. And we're going to see God make another, uh, we'll see another declaration that God created the heavens and the earth. But 
What do you see different about this? What I, I mentioned to you underlining this a second ago. How is God um, identified here? Lord God. Chapter one uses the very impersonal name for God, Elohim. You know, like when we say God, God, God is the most generic word for God in our English dictionary, right? Well, so is Elohim. Elohim's a very generic word for God. But this word Lord that comes before it, you're, um, if you look in the, the, the beginning of your Bible where the, the editor gives all of his notes, you'll see that they, they'll uh, give Lord here. And when you see Lord God, that's where Yahweh, the word Yahweh, w, Y-W-H, precedes Elohim. And this is, this is the personal name for God that God gave Moses. You'll remember in Exodus 13, there's this burning bush calling out to Moses, and Moses is losing his mind. Like, what is going on here? He tells him to take his sandals off because he's uh, standing on holy ground, and this fiery bush says, go to the Pharaoh, go to the king, and say, let my people go. And he's like, <laughs> whom am I supposed to say he sent me? Verse uh, Exodus three fourteen says this, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's this word Yahweh. And he said, say to this people of Israel that I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, that the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. There you see the conversion of all these ideas that we see in chapter one and two. You see the Lord God. You see the generations unfold. But this Yahweh, we don't actually know what the uh, vowels are because the, the scribes removed them because they felt the name of God, this personal name was so holy that it should not be uttered. So what we have is W or YWH. And um, we can kind of guess because the Hebrew language is very rhythmic. You kind of know what the vowels are that are coming. So we assume that it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name that God gave Abraham or uh, gave Moses at the bush. It means that I am that I am. This God has no beginning. This God has no end. Who made God? That's always the question that kids ask, right? It's also the questions that adults ask. We're just scared to say it out loud. The answer is nobody. He always was, he always is, and he will always be. He was before time. He is in time. He created time. He's outside of time. And when time is no more, he will continue to be. That's who this God is. He knows the beginning as the, as the end because he is above it all as well as being personal and in it. God doesn't just reveal himself as a God who is highly exalted above all things, but he's also a God who draws near, a God who is knowable, and a God who wants to know you personally. And we're told in the Bible that if you draw near to God, what will he do? He will draw near to you. It's, an, it's a statement of absolute. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Tomorrow, when we enter into this season of fasting, and please, if you take medicine, 
just fast in your heart. Just be, be in a, a spirit of prayer. But drawing near to God that way, God will draw near to us. In verse five and six, God is explaining what's going on here on day six in this, day, in this creation day. And God reveals to us a problem. There was no man to work the ground. And, but then he turns his attention to man, verse 7. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed in him, into him, the nost- into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God wanted to have someone to work his ground, and he, God formed this man from the ground. And I love that parallel. Like, don't forget your humble beginning. We come from the dirt, and we go back to the dirt. Don't think too highly of yourself. The only thing that will remain is the spirit that is made in the image of God. God is a good gift giver. He's given Adam a world designed for him to exert dominion over He's given Adam the the breath of life in his lungs, and he's made Adam into his image. He's given Adam a home, and not only a home full of food. You know, we really hone in on, like, it had every kind of fruit. That's beautiful. That's great. But what else does it say? God also made it beautiful. Look at verse 9 in your Bible. Because I think sometimes we, we overlook the importance of beauty. Look at something around and tell me uh, that God didn't make it beautiful. Except for the platypus. That's a funny looking creature. But verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. This place that God put Adam, God designed it with beauty in mind. God is a good gift giver. God gave Adam a job. And he gave them a job by which to worship. Let's look at verse 15. A God-given gift of work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God put Adam in the garden to, to work it and to keep it. And again, if you're wondering, we were created to work. We were created to work. Last week, we focused on our need for rest. A couple months ago, we talked about our need for saying no so that we don't overbusy ourselves and we don't work ourselves to death. But we were created to work. We're created to work. So we're going to spend a few minutes thinking deeply about this good gift of work that God's given us. The first thing I want you to look at or think about is that work is an expression of the image of God in you. Work is an expression of the image of God in you. The first thing we, what, what's the first thing we see God doing in the Bible? It rhymes with, I can't even think of a word that rhymes for working. It's working. The first thing we see him do is work. God works. That's what he's doing. God is actually always at work. He starts off creating. Then we see him maintaining. Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ, not only does he cause all things to exist, but he's, the cause of all things currently existing. 
Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. God, Jesus, God, he's constantly doing this. Jesus came to the earth to work. Jesus said to them in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. The Holy Spirit, he's constantly working. He's doing the work of sanctification in our life. He's the one who goes to the lost. He's the one who, who woos them and draws them to the Father. He's the one who illuminates their eyes. He's the one that Jesus says uh, reveals, to the, reveals sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit's constantly at work. The Son's constantly at work. The Father is constantly at work. And think about this. Jesus, while on earth, probably learned his earthly father's trade probably that of carpentry. And we think of like working with wood, but more likely masonry. Did that work that he did for 30 years not matter? Those mundane days of waking up early and going and learning a trade, did it matter? Yes, because his work honored God. Work matters. The way you work will reveal to you what you believe about God because we should be striving after God in our work. God cares about every moment of your life, even those moments that feel very, very menial. These moments prove what we believe about him. And there's no part of your life that God does not declare as his. There's no part of your life that he does not assert his lordship over. And that includes your work, your relationships while you're at work, the things why you, that you say at work, and your attitude at work. Work matters. Let's keep looking. Next thing I want you to think about is that work is a blessing from the Lord that he uses to bless the world through you. Work is the one, one of the main ways that God gives provision in our life, isn't it? Um, if you hate what you do, don't whine about it, don't cry about it, have self-control, operate in dignity, work hard while you're there, and hey, find a new job, but don't whine. Find, go, go, go do more work and find a different job. But while you're there, work with excellence. God designed us to work for the flourishing and the blessings of other people, for the flourishing and blessing of humanity. We want to make, the only thing that matters is like ministry-related things, and that's just not true. It all matters. Adam was made to tend the ground. And by doing your job well, you are tending God's creation for in furthering human flourishing. Also, you doing your job well, it, let's think about how it advances human flourishing. Let's say you're a farmer. You're blessing thousands by feeding them. If you're a teacher... You're blessing hundreds in a lifetime by educating them. And then whatever they grow up and do, that work that you've done in them, that's blessing those other people around. If you're in the building trades, 
You're, you're creating an environment where, where people get to rest and people get to make a home and people get to live safe. If you're a, 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 a doctor or in a medical field, you're, you're, you're adding the human flourishing and advancing God's cause in humanity by making people uh, get well. If you're a cop, you're protecting the masses and allowing us to flourish. It all matters. Every bit of what's going on in your life matters to God. In the Bible, God celebrates the worker. I love, I, I love reading. It's, it's, I get that Exodus and Leviticus are kind of mundane. Like they're kind of hard to read. Mundane's not the right word, but they're hard to read. But you'll, you'll, as you start reading through it, you, you see God celebrating at, in the creation of the tabernacle, the musician. He celebrates the, and honors the builder and the one who can craft and, and smith metal. We see throughout the Bible, God celebrate the farmer and the warrior and the shepherd. In Proverbs 31, God honors the woman who works hard and keeps her home and who also goes out into the marketplace buying and selling land and buying and selling textiles. You, you, you see, God, he, he sends a wealthy man to do the ministry. And how did the man get wealthy? I'm just going to assume by work to do the ministry of buying Jesus a grave and putting him in there. Or let's say, let Jesus borrow it for a few days. You see God using a collective of people as he sends out his first missionaries to support those journeys by the wealth that they've accumulated in their work. And these people were mostly giving out of their poverty. Philippians, Lydia, She's one of the first main funders of, of, the, of the, the, the gospel movement. She's a wealthy woman who has built a life for herself buying and selling um, fabrics. It all matters, and God uses it all for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. So let's, let's keep look, looking. I want you to see that work Work is worship. Your work, whatever it is, needs to be understood like God understands it. Your work, everything that you do every day is an opportunity to worship God. I love Colossians 3.23. We're going to read 3.25. It'll be on the screen. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Some things are we to work hard? <laughs> Everything. And we're doing it for God, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. Your work is meant to display your love and devotion to God. And you're going to be judged by God for how you work. And this is not talking about ministry work. This is talking about working Verse 25 is connected to this idea of work. And you're going to see it on the screen. And it seems 
that the wrongdoers who will be paid back are the ones who work lazily. And God will not show partiality to whatever this judgment is coming, even to believers who work lazily. Colossians 3.25. For the wrongdoer, this is connected to that idea in verse 24, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for his, the wrongdoing that he has done. There is no partiality. God cares about how you work. It honors God for us to work hard. It is God honoring to do your job with excellence and be as best as you can in what you do. Being lazy, this is going to be, I hope not an overstatement, I believe is sinful. Not doing your job well, not doing your job with as much excellence as you possess, as best as you can, is not worship. And everything that we do that we're not worshiping God in, I think that's sin. Not working hard, being lazy, it's sinful. Ephesians 6, 5, talking about work again. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear. And for us, let's just call them our bosses. Obey your, 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 your boss with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people, as, a, as people pleasers, but as a bondservant of Christ. So who are we working for when we work? Is it for our boss or for our master in heaven. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service, and that's talking about your work, with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. God wants you to be working for the audience of one, not as a people pleaser, but knowing your work is doing the will of God and it is pleasing to him. And as you serve in whatever you do, if it's doing your schoolwork, if it's doing your, your uh, going to the shop or going to the classroom, wherever you go, it's all opportunity to worship. And we are to render service with a good attitude as well as in excellence in our performance. So let's, let's look at the last idea I want you to see about work. Work is a good gift of God. Work is, is not a part of the curse of the fall. Work being hard is the curse. But work was not created at the fall. Work was cursed in the fall. God created man to work and he put us in the garden. He created us to work. He put us there with, with um, a woman. And what does he say? It is very good. Now, if you don't have a job you like, you certainly do not have to stay in it. But while you're there, you do have to work as if it's worship, because it is and you're going to work for the glory of God while you're there. Amen? 
You know, amen means let it be so. So we all just said yes. So let's look at verses uh, 16 and 17 now. God given commands for our good. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's commands are for our good and for human flourishing. God did not give Adam this restriction to be mean somehow. God's law was for Adam's good. It made clear what he should not eat. It made clear what would please the Lord. It made clear to Adam what was dangerous. It made clear what the Lord's will is. That's what God's commands do. They're good gifts. One argument, or one of the greatest arguments against the law of God that make Christians baffled somehow is, wouldn't God want me to be happy? No. <laughs> Not if your perceived happiness is is adverse to his will. He's defined holiness and whatever you've defined as happiness, if it's, if it's at odds, you are to put that thing under the lordship of Jesus or you're walking in sin. Do you think Adam was happy when he got evicted from the garden for eating the fruit? Do you think that Adam was happy when he found out that because sin had came in the world, because he ate the fruit, that his beloved son Abel died, he was murdered? Do you think um, it made Adam happy when him and Eve eventually died? Do you think that made him happy as he saw his body decaying? Yes, God's commands may be restrictive, to your immediate perceived happiness. But God's, God's commands are for your good. They're for my good. God's commands are going to be restrictive to something you think will make you happy now. But if you place it under his lordship and authority, you're going to find better on the other side of it. If you die chasing your happiness in a way that discards God's good commands what you're going to find is hell. You're not going to find at the end of your life, well done, my good and faithful servant. We're saved by faith. You want to know the evidence that you've been saved? The evidence is, the evidence is, not, the evidence is not the cause, but it's the proof. Is Jesus Lord over your life? Not did you say a prayer back in 1977. Is he Lord? God is gracious in giving us Jesus. It was God's command for Jesus to come. I'm sure that Jesus was not happy when he was walking to the cross. The Bible tells us 
of his distress in the garden, but he chose obedience over his immediate happiness and comfort, and he purchased our salvation. And because he did it, God will honor him with a name above all names, and there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those of us who believe and are changed and walk in faith, there will be a day that we're exalted by the Lord as well, where we get to, to reign and rule with him forever in heaven as sons and daughters, calling him Abba. Let's look at the last part. The God-given gift of family. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man would be alone. Can I get an amen? amen? And I will make him a helper fit. Now, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call, him, call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's, that's what its name is. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, and to the beasts of the field. But Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is your first poem, by the way, first poetry going on. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Verse 18 opens with the second problem in the garden. The first one was that there was no man to work the ground, and the second one is that the man was now alone. You can almost see God stepping back from creation and be like, nope, that guy needs a lady. Because it's not good that we're alone. I know when Jordan goes out of town, it's amazing how quickly I go feral. Right? My beard starts growing faster. I start just... Uh, drinking straight from cartons. It's not good that I'm alone. <laughs> God said that it was not good that man's alone. And he put Adam into a deep sleep and he took from his side and he created a woman. And God did this because there was no helper suitable for him. And I'm, I already made the case for order, but this Every line in this is building this case for God's desire for order. So what does it mean that she's a, a helper? Ladies, what does it mean that you're a helper? Because this is a huge task. Most translations say helper, but it's actually two words. Um, some of your other translations will say help meet or help mate. But we kind of gloss this, this, these two words into one, and the words are azer kenigdo. So azer, we talked about this in Peter, 
is used in the Old Testament to here to explain the function of the woman, but in other places, this word helper is for military aid and rescue. Um, and it's also one of the words used for God with Israel, that he is a helper, that he's a rescue. The kenigno, kenigdo means to, to oppose or to be opposite. God's role for women from the beginning is a position, not of weakness, but a position of strength for what is lacking in man. She, she's, she has distinctive. She is to be a strong helper and a rescue to stand in opposition to you when you need it. This opposition is not to be a position of obstinance or Ladies, you are missing it if you're making yourself an enemy across battle lines. No, it's the positive application of resistance. Positive application of resistance. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and when he wakes up, he crafted from his side a woman. And Adam is so happy and so impressed, he breaks out in a poem in verse 23. I guess he's trying to, to woo her. Like, I mean, he's never seen one before. It's a, I can almost like, like a junior high boy trying to impress a girl. Like he just, he breaks out with a poem or, or a song he wrote for. But he, but guys, like if you're in this stage of trying to impress a girl, like the song works. <laughs> so, and then God, he, he goes on to give us a commentary of what we should think about this whole creation story in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. When you get married, you're now a new family unit. And I know there's a lot of parents and grandparents in here, just remember, when your child gets married, they are now a new family unit because sometimes that stress from you guys is one of the earliest main fissures in the relationship. When you marry, you're now a new family unit. You are to marry and hold fast to your spouse. Now, this is definitely not saying you're no longer to love your family of origin, but once you commit in marriage, then God expects your allegiance to primarily reside with your spouse. God has designed marriage to be covenantal. We'll talk about that word more next week. Sexual. Marriage is for the purpose of reproduction. It's a lifelong union between one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant, the love covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. Everything else is a result of the fall. Everything else is a distortion of God's original design. Marriage is not just a human contract. Rather, it's a covenant made before God. It was never a part of God's design for people to use their God-given gift of sexuality outside of marriage. The distortion of this God-given sexuality includes 
homosexual acts, polygamy, polyamorous, I had to look that one up, or whatever depraved type of relationship that the world can think of that's outside of one man and one woman for life in a marriage covenant. And I know a lot of you guys in here, I was talking to my neighbor yesterday, and he just feels beat up. Like he doesn't, he feels like the world's changing so fast and he doesn't know what to think about it. And, and I'm sure that's what we feel like when we're thinking about it. We have God's clear design right here. I know when I was working with youth, they always wanted to know, and grown-ups really do too, they just ask questions better. They wanted to know where the line was in their relationships. The question should never be, where is the line? The question should always be, when we're considering these relationships, what is holiness in here? What's holiness here? I don't care if you're watching TV or you're buying something. The question is, what is holiness here? God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings in his own image, equal before him as persons, but distinctly male and distinctly female. God made differences between the male and the female, and it would be wrong and a distortion of God's word to use his divinely ordained differences between male and female to somehow make them unequal in dignity or in worth. God made these differences between male and female to reflect uh, and to, to be counterparts for the good of human flourishing. Denying these differences is denying God's design. And saying uh, and is saying that your culture somehow knows better and has progressed in such a way that we understand humanity better than God our designer does. God's way is better. God's plan is better. And it's a tragedy to see young children and adults be sexually mutilated because they want to change God's design that he gave them at birth, that he's encoded in every fiber of their being, in their genetics and in their DNA. Here's the truth. Adopting a homosexual or a transgender self-conception, and self-conception is the word, is inconsistent with God's holy purpose in creation and redemption. They are not born that way. Don't allow that to be a part of the narrative. They are not born that way. It is a self-conception that they have chosen to be a part of their identity. Their imagination does not make it true. No matter how passionate they are, and they're going to be way more passionate about it than you are. They are rejecting God's way and God's order. And this is the external evidence of the issues that are in their soul. 
by them rejecting God's design for them, it doesn't matter what they declare with their mouth. You can be confident that they've rejected God's design in their heart, that he would reign over everything and that he would be God. Don't accept I'm transgender, but I'm a Christian too. I'm a homosexual, but I'm a Christian too. When you put that adjective before the Christian, you're making that Christian subordinate to that thing. You're telling us what your God really is. It's that identity or that sexuality. Church, you need to remember that these people are broken. 87% of women who now identify themselves as men have considered suicide in the last year. 77% of men who identify themselves as women have considered suicide. And the numbers in the youth are astronomically higher. It is wrong to succumb to the delusion and affirm these lifestyles in any way. But it is also wrong to hate them. It is wrong to hate them. They are in desperately need of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if they die in their, their sins and their trespasses, they are on a road bound for hell. And God has put us in their way as roadblocks, and we are not to be silent, but we are also not to be full of hate. They need you to love them enough to engage in their lives and frequently share the gospel. Sometimes we look at these groups that are blinded by sin and say they wouldn't want to hear about Jesus. They're too far gone. They're image bearers of God and they're broken by the fall. Whether they're Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim or transgender or gay or addicted to drugs or alcohol or just the angry guy who lives down the street from you. They need Jesus. The love of God is more powerful than sin, and it will pierce through the darkest heart. Your heart before Jesus was just as dark, poor, and needy as theirs. We were depraved just as they are through and through, and God saved you. The evidence that God can save them you don't have to look any further than your nose. God saved you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven can be for them too if you would humble yourself and remember your spiritual poverty and acknowledge the spiritual poverty that they're in and offer them the gospel. And he would pour out the riches of heaven on them if they would accept his salvation in Jesus Christ. But how will they hear unless we share? We must take this God-given opportunity that, of life and the places that he's placed us in to live and the places that he's placed us in to work to be about the work of advancing his kingdom. Let's bow our heads together.